Hey, all my IFG friends, this is Steve. I want to say, you know, if you like movies like I do, we've started a new podcast called Happy Hour Flicks. Uh, you can find it anywhere podcasts are found. It's all about nostalgic movies that we love, and we bring on special guests each episode, and we also have specialty cocktails made for each one, too. So it really is an hour of a good time talking about movies that we love, like Gremlins, uh, Seven, uh, Free Willy. Uh, we talk about The Last Starfighter also. So, I mean, we kind of run the gamut across all the decades and really have a great time. So I wanted to invite you to come over and join us at Happy Hour Flicks, anywhere podcasts are found. The producer called me one day. She's like, we're greenlit to shoot. That's the good news. And I said, oh, great. What's the bad news? And she goes, well, the executive at, US, at USA Networks thinks that your script is too clever for their audience. So they're having somebody in-house rewrite it to dumb it down. That's crazy. This is the, the independent, independent, independent filmmaker's guide from Framework Productions. Framework, Framework Productions. On IFG, we talk about independent film from development through delivery. By featuring discussions with creators and collaborators about their experiences, we form a roadmap to help you have the most success with your projects. The horror genre has long been a cornerstone for independent films. Today, we speak with a writer whose love of and unique takes on the genre have helped him carve out his own place among horror films and fans. Both in the past, with the launch of the Final Destination franchise, and into the present and future with his latest movie, Don't Look Back. They always say that when you're writing the script, you're actually writing the script for the reader so that they can kind of get the story. So sometimes when you're writing stuff, you have to repeat things. That's Jeffrey Riddick, best known for creating the Final Destination franchise, but he's a screenwriter, producer, and now first-time director for his feature film, Don't Look Back. It's a very interesting story how I got into filmmaking. And I'm your host, Stephen Pierce. It started off when I was 14. Um, I was just like, I grew up in eastern Kentucky, so I was like this hillbilly in eastern Kentucky, and I saw A Nightmare on Elm Street um, at the drive-in and flipped out over the movie. I loved horror films. And so I went home and I wrote a prequel idea uh, for A Nightmare on Elm Street. And I called information and found out the name of the studio and the president. And I mailed it to him. Um, and he sent it back because it was unsolicited. So I'm like, look, mister, I spent like $3 on your movie. So I think you can take five minutes and read my story. And it was Bob Shea who ran New Line Cinema and founded New Line Cinema. So... He read it and got back to me um, and thanked me for my aggressive introduction um, and gave me some pointers. And from 14 to 19, I stayed in touch with him and his assistant, Joy Mann. And, um, you know, back in the day, I, this, was, this was back in the day. This was like 80s. Um, you know, I, I wanted to be an actor. Um, so I went to New York for the summer to study acting at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. And when I was in New York, you know, Bob, because I had this relationship with him and his assistant, Joy, they offered me an internship at New Line. And so I got an internship at New Line Cinema. The acting wasn't panning out well because this was like now, by now it was like, um, you know, late 80s, early 90s. And if you weren't white, then all the roles you could get were like drug dealer or pimp. And they're like, you just don't look, you look more like a Mike, you're more like a Michael J. Fox type. And we just don't know what to do with you in acting. So I decided I was going to pursue writing because I knew I wanted to be in the business. Um, so I stayed in New York um, and just stayed on at New Line Cinema and ended up working there for 11 years. And 
during that 11 years, I learned pretty much everything about the behind the scenes part of show business, which was really helpful creatively because I realized so many decisions weren't based on how good the script was. Um, You know, you'd get a really horrible script in with, you know, Jim Carrey attached, and then you'd get a great script in from somebody that was a new writer and they would go with the Jim Carrey script, you know, because it is a business. So I learned early on to kind of separate my ego from the writing process so that it, I mean, I still get bummed if there are certain jobs I don't get, but I don't get crushed. Like I know a lot of my writer friends who have moved to LA to be in the business, um, they just don't have the business work. So if they get one rejection, they're like, you know, devastated. And I kind of have learned that level of not taking things personally. Um, but, you know, I've just kind of evolved with the business. I mean, it's when I, when I wrote Bob Shea, Back then, you know, that was VHS and, you know, there were no DVDs. There was, there was no emailing people or, or following them on Twitter. It's like you had to, I had to type something and mail it in the mail, which is crazy. Right. Um, and um, yeah, so I've just learned to evolve with the business over time. And so I, you know, as I've gotten older, I've wanted to have more control. So I've started producing more, just directed my first feature. Um, and, you know, again, I think that's kind of the, the key, no matter what area of the business you want to work in is, seeing what the landscape is because the landscape is changing now so much. The theatrical part of the business has changed a lot because um, if you look at what the studios are doing, they're doing sequels, remakes, things that are based on like, you know, worldwide best-selling books uh, because the studios, if, if you look at them, the people that run them now, a lot of them are film are business people. Like I saw that transition because, you know, Bob Shea, when he created New Line Cinema was a film lover. Like he loved film he was just like a filmmaker. He wanted to get his stuff out there. He was showing film like John Waters films and, and other films at like campuses across the United States. Like he was just doing things very differently just to get film seen. And then Nightmare on Elm Street really put the company on the map um, as far as a force, you know, it, right. they call it the house that Freddie built. And it really <laughs> was the studio that Nightmare on Elm Street made. Um, but then I saw, you know, they brought in like a businessman who's, very, you know, very smart but he was very focused on the business side of stuff to run new line. And you see that happening across studios everywhere. It's like business people making the decisions now as opposed to creatives. So, you know, any business is looking at the bottom line. And so that's why you see studios like taking safe bets on, well, we'll just keep, we'll make sequels or we'll do remakes or we'll find a book that has an audience already. Does that affect how you approach and did that affect how you approach your creation of the content you're pitching and that you're making? Um, Not really because they still would, they still would, they would still take chances on things. Like, I mean, back in that new line was really kind of a maverick studio. I mean, they made, you know, blade when everybody was like, who would want to see a black superhero? Right. Sorry, Mm -hmm. black Panther. Um, but you know, they made Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles where it's like, who's good, you know, when the business people were like, well, who's going to go see a movie about turtles and you know, the mass. So they would take chances on movies, um, that a lot of places wouldn't. But for me, especially with horror, horror is kind of the genre that never goes away. And it's, it's finally getting the respect it deserves kind of still, but it, it, you know, it's still, you know, back then it was kind of looked as, you know, it was like the porn of, porn of, um, films it's like well yeah people watch it and they enjoy it and get off on it but it's not art. right it's not artistic it's, it's not, not artistic yeah um but it just it never goes you know there's always an audience for the, for that genre and the horror fans are very um faithful but for me i mean certainly if i'm 
producing something, I start, I look at trying to attach either a production company or an element that I think is going to help put it above, you know, the rest of the, the heap. You know, it's always concept, you know, they want something that they can kind of sell. Mm-hmm. You know, what is, what is the saying? Like the same, but different, you know, yeah, that Blake Snyder yeah. uses. Yeah. So it's like, you know, final destination. I mean, I had a hard time at New Line with that one and I worked there because they were like, well, we don't understand how you can have death as a killer. Like you can't see it and you can't fight it. I'm like, that's the point. Um, that's what makes and, it, that's what makes it thrilling and engaging. Yeah. And they were still very nervous about it. And, um, you know, they wanted at some point to like make it a kind of a grim reaper monster. And luckily when James Wong and Glenn Morgan came on, they were like, no, we want to, we don't want to do that. We want to make sure that it's like, you don't see it. And, and, you know, they kind of, they actually came up with the whole Rube Goldberg idea, but to your actual, to your question though, because I worked at new line, you know, everybody thinks, Oh, you work at a studio, you have a special in there. You do. But the only problem is a lot of the employees that work there were writers. So, you know, you're always still going to be like, Oh, that's the kid from Kentucky that Bob Shea, you know, enjoyed, you know, brought definitely. in. I mean, I feel, yeah, definitely understand that feeling. I mean, sometimes it feels harder to go vertical because you kind of get slotted in where you, where you and where you function in those large machines. And sometimes I think it can be hard to get, get out of that and say, Hey, I actually want to be doing this. Yeah. Cause ever, cause everybody, a lot of people would take, take, take jobs at studios as a stepping stone to right. get to like, and, and the studios know that. So they're, you know, um, so I actually went to some producers who had a deal at New Line through a friend of mine who was working with them and got producers attached before I brought the project to New Line. So you kind of went out to get in. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's really interesting. Yeah. Cause I just, I had submitted stuff directly and I had stuff that got good coverage and, you know, made it to weekend read, but you know, just didn't get pushed over the top. So I'm like, I got to try something different on this one. Um, so I went with producers who had a deal there. So you went out and you par- partnered up, you came up with the idea and you wrote the script and then you partnered up with some producers you'd kind of known outside, like surrounding that had a deal with new line. And then they helped you get in to pitch it at a higher level. Well, I wrote the, tr- I wrote a treatment back in the, back in the good old days, you could actually sell a treatment. Wow. Um, so I wrote like a 12 page treatment. Um, my friend, Chris Bender, uh, worked for Craig Perry and Warren Zide, who also produced the American pie franchise. Mm-hmm. So they're like, yeah, they created like a big horror franchise and a big comedy franchise. And, um, you know, I worked on it with them a little bit and then we'd take it to new line and new line would give us notes at first. All the characters were adults that didn't know each other. Um, and then Scream came out and then they're like, let's make them teenagers. I'm like, okay, fine. So I made them teenagers. I'm very, I'm very, I want to stay creatively true to my stuff, but I'm also very collaborative because, you know, if you well, want to be you like an, if yeah, you want I mean, to be an auteur, you almost have to produce and direct your own project first. Um, if you want to like, I can't change anything. So, but they kept coming back with the, with the death thing. And um, finally I remember Craig and Warren said, well, if you guys pass on it again, we're going to take it to Miramax. And they're like, we'll buy it. <laughs> like, wow. Yeah. Cause it was a good, it was good. It was a really good idea. And um, well, we were, obviously it's been what five films total. Yeah. And yeah. That obviously wasn't a discussion whenever you're making the first movie, right? How did, how did the process go from the, or were they, were they looking for something they could merchandise that large and like package and be like, this could be, you know, a huge franchise for us. Well, New Line was always very much about a brand. So they, they, they would make some one-off movies, but they always wanted 
the you know because they obviously with Nightmare on Elm Street they learned very early like right. you know you want to even Bob had made them reshoot the ending of Nightmare so that to open it up for a for a sequel. sequel. Um, so, but I'd always thought of it as a if it got made, I mean, I I didn't think it was going to do as well as it did, but I always had plans to like do another one. So that was kind of that was definitely always in my scheme of thinking. So like I kind of had the story for the second one in my head before we did the first one, even I just didn't write it out. So they were always looking for something that could be like a franchisable for sure. And so how did it go? What was it like making that first film? Because at that point, I mean, it is un, you were kind of unproven. You were then moving, I guess, did you leave the studio and go full time no, to writing? No, or? I, I did not. I did not do like, that's the funny thing is I'm like, Yep, I should have moved to LA after the first one, but I, I'm kind of a creature of habit. And I love I love New Line for and working there, so I decided to stay in New York because I'm like, oh, this is this is easy. I can just write in New York and just sell stuff and don't have to ever leave. And then um, it wasn't until I sold the story for the second one where my my boss, um, I'd worked with uh, Bob Friedman for the last five years there, who was the head of marketing and television. You know, he's talking to me. He's like, Jeff, I I, I love you. But, um, you know, it's time for you to leave the nest, brother. <laughs> like, you're a writer now. And I was like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, um, so the first, the making of the first one was very surreal because I was in New York. Um, and obviously, all the creative stuff was, you know, going on in Los Angeles. So, I, I'd come out for some meetings. But I, I basically, since Bob, you know, was bi-coastal, he, they would just send me every update, send me castings, notice, like they just kind of kept me involved. And, you know, I went out to set and shot a cameo. Um, so it was fun, but it, you know, I was, there was a kind of a disconnect because I was still working a full-time job. Right. That's interesting, man. That's really interesting. I never yeah, thought about it. It's kind of weird. Be... Like I'm kind of weird like that. I should have just quit and moved out to LA and just, but I think I would have been a, I always joke. Cause I, after I, you know, I moved to LA after nine 11, like I, quit new line, but after nine 11, I'm like, okay, I, I think it's time to go to, to Los Angeles. And, um, and I got sober once I got out here. So I think part of me thinks like, it's probably good that I did what I did. Cause otherwise I would have probably come out here and been like one of those douchebags who's like, I've got a movie and rah, rah, and then, you know, <laughs> drinking and doing Coke or I never did Coke, but just drinking and partying all the time, like an idiot. So I'm, I'm I think it, it worked out for the best in the, in the long run, but yeah, it was, it was pretty interesting. Like I didn't sell it. And then like, like everybody else I knew that had ever sold a project, like left immediately, but I just kept going into work because, you know, it's, all my friends were there, you know, in New York and all my, I had so many friends at this, you know, new line and I loved the studio. So did you sell the second one before the first one was released? Uh, no, no. It came so out. what the hell was it like whenever you went into work on like a Friday, you're like, um, I got to leave a little early today, guys. I got a premiere I got to go to. Yeah, no, it was fun. Like they actually, I had a, they had the LA premiere, but, um, I had them throw a premiere for me, for me back in my hometown in Kentucky. Oh, okay. Back in Kentucky. A town, a town over. We didn't have a, Oh, trust me. I'm from the middle of nowhere, Missouri. So I absolutely yeah, understand okay. that. I was so, hillbilly that moved to the city. Like, yes. yeah, me too. So <laughs> yeah, we had, to, we had in the next, next city over, we had a hazard in hazard, Kentucky. Um, they had a theater. So they bought out the theater and we had a premiere back there with my, with all my, my family and my friends and people I went to school with. So that was amazing. So how did it develop across time? So whenever you start to make, when it turns from one movie into a franchise, what did, what happened then? Like how did, how did that evolve and how did that change your role in your, your position? Well, it's, it is funny because I kind of ran into that 
that old, you know, he's a guy at, that works at a studio that got lucky, you know? So for the sequel and, um, you know, I always give Craig Perry, like one of the producers, he's been like the godfather of the series as far as like taking care of it and, you know, keeping it on track and just being very mindful and, and stuff like that. But, um, you know, I, I wrote a treatment like right away and it's funny cause then I find out that they're meeting with every writer in Hollywood. Um, so at the end of the day, they still ended up buying my treatment for the story. <laughs> so I'm like, yay. Um, and they hired uh, Jay Mackey Gruber and Eric Bress to write the screenplay because they had done the butterfly effect for New Line, which mm -hmm. was a, another big hit. Um, and I, I love the second movie. It's actually my favorite um, because it just kind of, I did all the stuff I'd want to do in a sequel, you know, like, you know, and not just have tell the same story, but expand the mythology. You know, I wanted to start off with a group of kids that you think are the leads and then kill them all off. Right. You know, in the highway accident. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I originally had written Alex and Clear both to come back in the sequel, but then they killed him off with a brick in between movies because he wasn't available. It was just kind of a stupid thing they did. Um, but, it, you know, it did all the stuff that I wanted to do in, this, in a sequel. I think the biggest transition for that one was, you know, again, James Wong and Glenn Morgan came up with the Rube Goldberg aspect of the first film um, because in my original version, since death had kind of screwed up the first time it, it had to make, make the characters commit suicide. So it would, it, there was a very Nightmare on Elm Street vibe to it where definitely you know, kind yeah. of bring their kind of fears to life and then they would kill themselves. So it was very dark, you know, it's not, mm -hmm. not a that, fun final destination. Um, <laughs> that sound, honestly, that sounds awesome. Like I'm all, I really love that. It, so I, I still love it. I still love it, but I can see why the suicide, suicide may have been a little heavy. Right. You know? Yeah, yeah, um, totally. But then I just readjusted my, this, my story for the sequel to fit in with the Rube Goldberg thing and not the suicide thing. And yeah, and then they made me an executive producer on the second one. Um, so, you know, so I had, you know, more say on the behind the scenes stuff than I, than I did on the first one. Um, and then yeah. after that one, you know, since I quote unquote created it, like I, you know, I still get like payment whenever they do a new one and stuff like that. But I know the studio and I am really good friends with Craig. So I kind of, we bounce ideas off of each other and things like that. But the sequels are fun. I love the fifth one. I thought the fifth one was, was, was brilliant. Cause I kind of, you know, yeah, I just love the fifth one. Um, but I think they're all fun. You know, for me, I'd love to like do something different with it, you know, cause in my mind, like death can have many designs and use different, you know, including suicide mm -hmm. um, <laughs> to, to get people. So, um, you know, but they really want to, you know, we, it's, they've got a formula at work. So at this point, it's like, if it's not broke, don't fix it. You know, did they consult you at all for anything that comes later on? Or are you just kind of like told like, this is what we're doing? Craig usually talks to me and gets my input or ideas about what's going on. Um, you know, he's very good about doing that. Um, so I, yeah, I know stuff. But on the second one, you, they, they made you an executive producer. What is, I mean, so literally sounds like years before that, a year, maybe even before that you're working in an office in new line cinema in New York. And then all of a sudden you're an executive producer on a Hollywood film. And that yeah. is a big jump. So how did you, how did you approach taking that job on and what were the roles that you've fulfilled as, as that on the second film? Well, to be honest, um, sometimes an executive producer is just somebody who finances the film. Right. Um, I know for the second movie, I just helped with casting and, and things like that. I wasn't really, I mean, I went to visit set, but I wasn't real. I was just more, I was more like on the first film, Bob Shea kept me 
creatively involved, like giving me every draft of the script, giving, asking for notes. Um, and on this one, it was just the producers did that more. It was just like asking me for advice. So it wasn't, it wasn't like I went on set and hired people or, or, you know, which would be more of a producer role. And it was kind of just keeping you making sure that you had like the, the world kind of filtered through you a little bit and making sure yeah. that it didn't totally shift in a way that you were uncomfortable with. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so then what happened after that for you? Like we're moving forward kind of into your career. You say now you're more into producing and obviously you've just directed your first feature. How did that, how long did it take you to transition into that? And what was it like directing now versus, um, you know, being a writer and producer? After um, Final Destination 2, I mean, I had, a, you know, other movies come out, you know, Tamara, I did the Day of the Dead remake that everybody loves. Oh, yes. I, actually, that's uh, Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead that everybody loves. Everybody hates mine. But that's okay. It's a fun movie. They just shouldn't have called it Day of the Dead. Um, right. And I think what got me more into wanting to produce and take more control of my career is just, you know, I had a lot of films where a studio would, would option it or a studio would buy it, but then stuff would happen at the studio and then it'd go into turnaround and never get made. Or, you know, a lot of my films ended up, you know, getting taken out of turnaround and getting made for like, you know, under a million dollars. So that kind of became a, tr a trend after a while. And a lot of the films I loved and some of them you just, you learn to love all your films at some point. I think the only film that I cringe at is the Return to Cat by the Lake TV movie. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. That one's, but the thing is like, I wrote, the script that I wrote was really good. I'm not just saying that because I've written some shitty scripts. I will, I will say I've written some crappy scripts, but that script was really good. And they actually got Judd Nelson and the director back based on my script. But then the head of USA networks at the time and the, the producer called me one day, she's like, um, well, we're, 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 we're greenlit to shoot. That's the good news. And I said, Oh great. What's the bad news? And she goes, well, the executive at, US, at USA Networks thinks that your script is too clever for their audience. So they're having somebody in-house rewrite it to, and these are That's her words, crazy. To, to dumb it down. So wow. they literally went through, like all the scenes are there in order, but everything's just been like dumbed down. Like, you know, the, the director who in my, in my original script was like, I didn't want to make him a sleazy director. I wanted to make him like, he's dating the lead actress but he's got all these other actresses trying to like sleep with them to get their bigger parts. And he's like, no, 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 I'm in love with them. And they're like, why doesn't he just sleep with all the actresses? That's what directors would do. And I'm like, cause that's stupid. And that's cliche. Right. So he just really dumbed the script down. And so I think the director, I can't speak for him, but he ended up directing it more like a comedy. Hmm. Cause I think he probably just, he's probably just like, yeah, they screwed the script up. So what the hell? I'm just going to go with the comedy on this one. What is it like? Like, what is the process like? How do you get a script in their hands? And then what is the process of it getting, you know, optioned and then made and how, how are they? I mean, I guess how also are they making the decisions to have somebody else come and rewrite your story that they optioned from you? You know what I mean? Like that's kind of, yeah, that's really interesting that that, that can happen. Like I think probably in three cases, it was just the timing. Like I would sell a script, and the executive that was really hot on it would be championing it. And then that person would leave to go mm -hmm. to another studio. And anytime an executive leaves, it's just kind of common knowledge that the new executive will come they're in a clean house. They're going to dump clean house. Yeah. And it's for me, it's like, do the, you can clean house on the bad scripts, but if something's a solid script, you should probably just keep it. So if that, if that happens to you and your script gets dumped, like because an executive left and it just kind of gets swept out the door, do you get it back then to go no. sell it somewhere else? No, no, no. That would be too, that would be too nice. Um, you have to have somebody buy it from the studio. 
Wow. So yeah. when, you, when you, they option it from you, it's totally just. Oh, you, if they option it from you, um, but they usually will buy it. Okay. I mean, before final destination, it was very much an option. And that still happens on occasion if they're not, you know, depending on the company, if they're confident that they can make it, they'll buy it. But a lot of times they will just option it for like a year and a half or something. So I've had that happen where they've optioned it and sat on it. And then, you know, by that time, like, you know, there was like, a, there was like a lot of buzz around it with different studios, but because it didn't get made, then all of a sudden it's like, you know, you can't recreate that buzz and you can go back and say, Hey, the script's available again. And they'll be like, Oh, we've got something like it in development. So then you just sell it wherever you can sell it. Um, but if they buy it from you, then if somebody wants it, then they have to kind of pay the studio all the money they put into it. Plus they've added interest onto it. So it ends up becoming like expensive to buy a script back from a studio. Wow. That's, that's fascinating. So you sell a script to a studio as an idea or as a script, like as a thing, and then they yeah. can do whatever they want with it. Basically. It sounds like. They After they somebody- buy it, yeah. And it's really, it's, it's my frustration with this has always been that script writing is really the only art form where they buy your, all your rights and can do anything. Yeah. With it. That's crazy. Like that's, that's insane. Yeah. I mean, that is like, you can't do that anywhere else. Like how can you buy someone's like script idea, totally change it to a totally different thing and then not have, I mean, then that just be okay. That's so yeah. weird. Yeah. Like with a book, you can buy the rights to a book, but you can't, you don't take ownership. Like you actually sign the copyright over to the studio when you sell a, a script. So I don't know if like James, I'm sure James Cameron doesn't sell the right. rights to a script, but most of us are never going to be James Cameron. So right. yeah, they end up buying the copyright, the ownership of your, of your scripts. Do you have any scripts that you've ever sold, didn't get made and they're just sitting somewhere and you think it's a fantastic script and you can't, one can't get it back. She can't get it bought back and two really can't ever rewrite or do something similar with it because it's owned by the studio. Um, not really. Cause the, the great thing is you can't copyright a concept. Mm-hmm. So it's all about the execution. So I, I couldn't go out and like, you know, use like half my script and just change a few things and like sell it somewhere else. Right. Like, that would get me in trouble. I certainly have taken ideas from in scenes from scripts that I've written that even that I've sold and repurposed them for other films. If there's a set piece that I liked in a script, I can certainly recreate that in a different scenario in another script. So um, I do do that. So you took everything you learned from kind of writing and this process with the studios and you turned that into then you becoming a director for Don't Look Back. How was that different for you? I, I learned that no matter how many times you've been on sets and watched people direct, um, it's not the same until you actually do it. I think cause I'd been on so many sets and I'd seen so many directors with different directing styles and things like that. I think I, I knew how important everything was, but I didn't like, you know, time, time, time is the biggest thing that you, you need. Like you need many days, you know, as many days as you can get, but we were really like an indie shoot, you know? So this wasn't like kind of a studio, you know, level shoot. So we were really kind of doing an indie shoot. And how many days did you end up filming? Um, a lot. Oh, well, that's good. That's good. A, yeah. But, but a lot. Yeah. Yeah. It was, a, we had a lot of company moves, um, which were, you know, it was, it was, it was funny. Cause when I, once I got down there and we started, we went down for a month, you know, ahead of time to do pre-production. Once I got down there, I started realizing like, there is no way that we can shoot all these places and do all these things. So I kind of, 
rewrote, rewrote the script as much as I could, but I was also like rewriting while we were shooting. So it was, um, it's good to be the writer, but it's also very hectic when it's all of a sudden like we're running behind and we don't right. and that, these you don't have scenes, anybody so. that you can then turn to and be like, Hey, can you, you know, make them not do this and combine that into another scene? Cause then you have to physically yeah. sit down and do it while everybody in the world is asking you a question. Oh yeah. No, there was like one, one day in particular where it's like, I realized there were, there was a scene where like five things happened and like, I was like, you know, we, because of what we shot, we could get rid of like four of these things. So I need to rewrite this. And they're like, okay, five minutes. I'm like, I can't rewrite it in five minutes. I mean, I'll rewrite it as fast as I can. So I did like go upstairs and they kept knocking. Right, is it rewritten yet? I'm like, guys, go away. <laughs> Let me rewrite the seed. It was a great learning experience. It, you know, we had a wonderful team. We had great talent and it was a lot of fun to do. Like it, it's definitely something I want to do again. I learned a lot about writing while I was doing this. And I also learned about, you know, a lot about just directing. Cause it, it was almost like we were doing it guerrilla style, which I think I needed for my first film, because I think if I'd have got spoiled with a $5 million budget, then I wouldn't have learned as much as I had learned on this project. So, so this was also based on like a short film that you guys did, like right called the good Samaritan. And yeah. So, and that is pretty different the short film from the trailer. So what morphed? How did, why did you make the short film? Did that help you get it sold? Like, you know, get the, sorry, not sold, but that help you get the financing together to make it. And then how did that morph into a feature film? When I did the short, I decided that I was going to take a character from the short and expand his storyline and make it straight up kind of supernatural, but you just don't know if it's real or in his head. Um, so the short is definitely more horror focused and the movie is more suspense like mystery with horror in it okay um so that was the biggest difference gotcha so it sounds like they're kind of two different pieces that have share a similarity of concept yeah yeah they they share the the, the concept of you know not not watching and in the original feature um you know nathan was agoraphobic one of the characters in the film so that's mm -hmm. why he didn't help so i used that but when i was when we were doing the the film, we couldn't find any locations where we could find a building overlooking the park. And then it just felt too weird. So we just have them actually at the park now. So the agoraphobic stuff is gone. So now whenever you actually physically got there, is that going to change your writing style moving forward? It, it was funny. I just, I realized like in the script, like the, the lead character, um, her name's Caitlin Kramer and she's, she and some people witness somebody being assaulted and don't help. Um, and then something starts coming after them. Like they, the, the guy that gets assaulted dies. And so then they're out into the public and somebody starts coming after them. And I, a couple of funny things, like in the script, I realized once we were shooting like that, I had her boyfriend bringing her food a lot. His name's Josh and he would come in with Chinese takeout or he'd come in with, he'd be cooking or he'd be, and I was like, wow, there's like, and we shot all the scenes in the house in one week. So I'm like, oh shit, I've got, a, he, he's like, every time he's come in the house, he's got food with him. So, you know, <laughs> I ended up like changing that. And so it's things like that, that I, and transitions too. like, you can always end a scene on something like a dramatic line, but that doesn't tell you like how, you know, how does that scene transition into the next scene? Like, cause yeah, when you're reading the script, it's like dramatic line cut to next location. We're on a character sitting at a table, but visually that's not a transitional kind of thing. So it's got me thinking more about transitions. Yeah, when I started writing, I remember when I wrote the first draft of Final Destination, Craig Perry sent it back to me and he, he'd marked out so much of it, quit directing, quit directing, quit directing. Because I would, I would have like, you know, we 
come into the room and pan see this. And that, you know, I, I was directing the movie and then I learned very quickly that as a writer, you're not supposed to write Do like that. that. Yeah. So that's interesting. So if you're going to, I assume you're probably going to, well, let me ask you, are you going to direct again? Is that like an, an ambition you still have after Dunning once or did it burn you out and you're like, I'm going back to writing? No, I wanted to, I, I have like a couple of projects that I want to direct. Like there's, there's one that I've sat on for a long time that I tried to sell it before, but it involves like, it's very Stephen Kingish and Nightmare on Elm Street and every place that wanted to buy it wanted to make them all teenagers. And I'm like, no. So that one I'm going to definitely direct. And there's, there's a couple of projects that I want to direct. I, it's interesting because people tell me like, after you direct the first time, you're going to either hate it or love it. You know, you'll know, like if you're, and so I definitely didn't, leave the process saying, I don't want to direct. I don't want to become like a director full time. Like I, I have certain stories of mine that I want to direct and tell. And then also I have scripts that friends of mine have written that I think are great that I want to help them get made. So, so kind of moving into producing, directing, writing, just kind of all over, just becoming handling all of the aspects. It sounds like. Yeah. The good news is with how the business has changed now, there are a lot more production companies like this, you know, yeah, we have our major studios, but there are so many other production companies out there. There's so many places looking for content, obviously, you know, having something on DVD or premiering on Netflix or Amazon is not a dirty word anymore. I mean, they, they have huge stars and a lot of their stuff. So there's a, there are so many more avenues to get your work out there than there were when I was starting there's so many more opportunities out there than there were when I started off. So you just have to kind of be on top of what's going on and who's doing what. Absolutely. It all comes down to story, right? I mean, everything yeah. comes back to story Yeah. for don't look back though. What's the next plan? Where, where is it going? Where can people find it? And what's, what's your distribution look like for it? It's coming out in fall. Um, we'll be announcing the date pretty soon. And I don't know if this is going to happen. We had originally planned for like a 10 city, limited release, um, like a week, I think leading up to the film coming out on demand. Was that with the distributor or were you guys just four walling stuff? Like you're doing uh, the distributor was going to do that. Let me just ask this question. How did you get connected to your distributor? Well, um, my producer, Andrew Vanden Houten, um, he does a lot of distribution himself. So he's very connected in that world. And we just, um, when the film was done, we just, we sent it out to people that I knew at studios and production companies that I knew he had a, you know, he knows, pretty much everybody. So he kind of just sent it out to everybody. Um, and then we just settled on the place that kind of offered us the, the best deal, which was like a limited theatrical, you know, and, you know, on demand. So it was, it was, it was, it was cool. You know, and is that your overall strategy? Was it the strategy from beginning probably to hit like TVOD or, you know, SVOD, AVOD to try and make the money back? Obviously when you make something, your first thing is you want it to get, you want to, cause you want to see your movie in a theater, you know, mm -hmm. it's just like, right. you just want to. But, you know, as, as we, you know, as we went through the process, I mean, the film is, is really good, but the, it, you know, it doesn't, it's not easy to categorize because it's not, it, you can't say it's a horror film. And I used to hate films that, that were like, oh, we're not really a horror film. I'm not saying that at all. Like, but I, you know, this, the one I chose to do wasn't a straight up horror film because, you know, we couldn't show too much with the kills because you don't know if it's supernatural or a kill, an actual physical killer. So we couldn't show anybody we're running around stabbing somebody with a knife or strangling somebody. And mm -hmm. so we had, so it, it kind of fell in the, in between genres. So that ended up being a little tough, you know, with the studios because we don't, we don't have any like a list stars in our movie. We have a great cast. They're amazing. I, I'm, I'm very excited to, for y'all to see, to see their work, but 
you know, since from a sales point, we didn't have any A-list like right. cast members. They're like, well, this isn't really horror. So we can't sell it as a genre film. So we need the name because it's more of a mystery thriller. Mm-hmm. So that turned into like the kind of double-edged sword that I kind of knew going in, but yeah, at first our plan was to have a $5 million budget and throw a couple of big names, big in, names in there. They can go on the poster and draw people in. Yeah. But um, now it's just this, it's going to have to rely on the story. And, <laughs> and, you know, back to story, you know, I wanted to start like promoting it now because I'm like a couple of, you know, October's not that far, but you know, the distributors are like, well, we usually wait till more to like September. I'm like, okay. Feels like it's cutting it close to me, but okay. Well, that's, I mean, overall to have a film that has just, that gets made, first of all, that yes. is a first time director and that, that has distribution in place is already a very, very, very big step. Yes. Um, what do you think you would say to young people that are either screenwriters or young filmmakers or people that are starting to make their first film? Like what have you learned along the way that you wish you knew when you started off? I, I think the, the, a couple of key things are you had to be patient um, because it takes time. Like, you know, there it's a, I hate all these cliches, but they're all true. There's, there's no overnight successes. You know, you, you know, we'll, we'll focus on that one person who was like this wonder can who sold a script at 20 for like, you know, and then aim for that. And we don't realize the thousands and thousands of people that come to LA or go try to get stuff made every year that don't actually get, can't get things made. So you really have to stay patient. Um, you know, the rule is kind of, you have to be willing to dedicate 10 years of your life to this craft and focusing on it before you start, start finding success. And that means finding work. That doesn't mean becoming like a millionaire right. and having a mansion. And I think that rule is because you have to, this has to be your passion. If this is, I meet too many people who are like, well, I'm going to, I'm going to write a movie. And if nothing happens, then I'm going to go start, sell, you know, insurance. It's like, well, just go sell insurance. Like don't, if, if you're just doing this as like right. a hobby, not right for you be open to constructive criticism because um, I find t- a lot of people when they especially when they're younger myself included was you know was a little cocky about taking criticism and that hindered me a lot from growing as an artist um, surround yourself with good people that's the biggest thing um, you'll find a lot in any business you'll find a lot of shady people but I always joke in the film business, like if somebody has a chance to get a movie made, they will throw their mother in front of a bus. A lot of people will to get a movie made. And you, you'll find that in a lot of your colleagues and friends, like they will go around you. They'll do stuff to undermine, you know, you just have to be surround yourself with good people, make your own content. If you can, I think that now, because there's so many outlets out there that will view content or you can get content on. Um, I have friends that have done shorts that have ended up on Amazon, you know, and, on Amazon prime. And so it's like, you can get a short and, or do a feature, you know, when you meet people that you really vibe with, you know, and connect with, like stick with those people. Like those are the people that, you know, I think you build the longest creative relationships with because it's such a small business. Like my first AD on don't look back ended up working on like the, as a first AD on the short of my best, like my best friend was working on like, two months after we finished and I never introduced them. Like they just met through somebody completely different. And then I found out there were, you know, it's just a small business. Um, you don't have to be in LA, you know, to find work. There's like great film communities, like in, you know, Louisiana, you know, Florida's got a good one. Texas is building up really well. It has a really solid one. Atlanta, obviously, you know, there are film communities all around the United States and there's film communities in every state too. So, you know, and also networking in a smart way, like 
I, you know, especially if you're a writer, I, I always tell people to pick a genre. I know we like to show how creative we are and we can do everything, but you have to think of this as a business. And because there are so many people, my old boss, Robert Friedman said, you know, you have to cut through the clutter. Like there's so many people coming to LA every day to be actors, to be writers, to be directors, to be producers, to be cat, you know, a lot some of them every day they're coming. And so you have to be in, in it for the long game and cut, you know, figure out how to cut through the clutter. So if you're a writer, it's like pick a genre because, you know, if you sell a horror script, everybody's going to want your next horror script. You can say, I've got this great comedy. They're going to be like, yeah, let me see your horror script. You know, cause it takes time. Like, Chris Nolan had to do two Batman movies, not just one. He had to do two, two Batman movies before they'd let him do Inception. Like he originally thought after the first one, okay. And they're like, well, we'll finance Inception, but you got to do one more Batman movie for us. You know, so it's just realize that the business side of it is a business. And it's, it's cruel because I've, as artists, like we put so much of our heart, heart and soul, and soul. Into our work. Mm-hmm. It's, 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 a, it's a cruel business in that they don't care about your heart and soul. They care about is this movie going to make money? Is this TV show going to get viewers? And it makes sense in a way, because whenever you look at their lineup every year, I mean, every distributor is trying to theme, they're trying to make money. That's the whole point, right? And it's a damn hard business to make money in. So I get it. Like that absolutely makes sense. I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head a second ago, whenever you, you were saying, you know, it's not really a horror movie. Um, so it's more of a thriller, but we don't have an A-list name in it. So it's like, it's kind of there. Everybody's kind of pushing back on it. I was like, I feel like every idea I've ever come up with is like, yeah, but it's this plus this and meets this. And it's just kind of like, ah, that's such good advice to be like, just pick a lane, especially in the beginning and just be, yeah. go down the lane. <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's a smart business move. Cause in that way, if you look at it, like what, if, if I could direct or if I could write or if I could act in a certain genre of, for 10 years, pick something that you'd be happy doing so that yes, if you sell a horror script, if you sell a comedy, if you direct a horror movie or you direct a comedy, like pick something that's going to make you happy because that's the lane you want to focus on. You can make a brand, create your own brand in that space. You know, like, cause when people think of horror, they or when people think of me, I should say, they think of horror the other way sounded way too sheer. Um, <laughs> when, they, when they think of me, they think of horror. It's funny because every time I say horror in a series, she, she writes out horror. So I don't know if I'm saying horror wrong, if I'm just saying it too fast, but Ciro's writes horror. I'm like, no, not horror. Horror. <laughs> it's a hard one to get around that middle R. Yeah. Yeah. I got to work on that one. Every time I almost sit, hit, hit messages. And I'm like, ooh. Well, if you ever write something for yourself to act in, just avoid that word like the play. <laughs> Like <laughs> it's uh, it's that type of movie which has a lot of jumps and uh, people are generally afraid. You know, popcorn gets spilled everywhere a lot. I can't remember what it's called. It Make somebody else say it to you, and then I'll go Hara. I'll just do like a Stewie Griffin and be like Hara. <laughs> well, um, Jeffrey, it's been wonderful to get to talk to you, and thank you so much for sharing your time and your advice and all the stories. Thanks, Stephen. Uh, yeah, no, it was great being here. And um, you know, again, we're artists and we're sensitive we have to realize like, again, a lot of the people that are putting up when it comes to putting up money for stuff, they don't, they don't understand. Like they don't understand like that a brief, you know, an actor will come in for an audition and they've prepped for like a week and they memorized all their lines and they leave. And then one of the producers is like, ah, oh, she looks like my ex, you know, boyfriend or some guys like he looks like my ex boyfriend or we don't want to use him. And it's like, that has nothing to do with the person's talent. It's just a stupid thing that's gets in some producer's craw 
and then they don't cast somebody like so what once you know that you know like that it's not about your value as an artist and it's not about you um it'll hopefully a not crush you but it'll also just inspire you to go out and kind of make your own art you never know if you put if you put your passion out there you never know who's going to see it and what it's going to lead to but if you don't if you sit at home and procrastinate or just think about it and don't actually do it then nobody's ever going to see it so just think about it that way just put your art out there and it'll eventually get seen by somebody who needs to see it. Okay, so I was one of those teenagers that saw Final Destination in the movie theaters. I don't know that I'm in a, uh, you know, promo where we're all screaming or whatever, but I definitely saw that movie in the movie theaters, like date night style, you know, slasher film to go see. Of course you did. Of course, I, I'd be surprised if you've not seen all of those movies. What I really love about him is how nice of a guy he is. First off, um, no, how genuine no of a person. Yeah, no ego whatsoever. That and like all the success has done all of this, and he's just a normal guy, like just straight up great. That's something that I kind of like about his story. You know, he said it's a little bit different that he didn't immediately get this big success and then move to LA and change his whole life and change everything about his life. He kind of went what would be different for most people who get a big, big Hollywood success like that. He got that success and then he kept working at his other job and he, you know, yeah. kind of kept slowly moving forward. I kind of respect that in a lot of ways. And I think that ultimately, you know, he joked that maybe he should have done it differently, but I don't know, you know, that I, I do think there's something to that. And I do think it's interesting. And I do think that keeping it, straight and narrow and and staying walking the line and, and staying on course rather than changing your whole lifestyle when you get a big success i think there you know i think there's something to that i mean he he did say straight up do you spend dedicate 10 years to this like you know what i mean if it's in one genre that was something really to take away was you know be patient stay in stay in a lane like pick what you want to do and do that because that's what you should dedicate your time to and that is so such good advice and he seemed very easy to work with. When we say no ego, you know, it really felt like he carries that type of thing into his writing where mm -hmm. he would say he would have this idea and then his co-writer would say, what about this idea? And he just would be ready to change it, you know, and not hold on too tightly um, to, to change or to um, criticism or to, you know, suggestions. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and it, it also just proves you know how tenacious you have to be because that's an interesting he has an interesting mix of tenacity but no ego but humbleness you know so he he has a way of just kind of feeling like he's driving always at something without judging the thing or the people around him like he's just kind of always poking at it and that that it's i mean that's very inspiring to see somebody be able to do that i can't wait to see uh his directorial debut don't look back Another yeah, movie with uh, uh, Jeremy Holm, right? Another movie with Jeremy Holm. And you can't, uh, honestly, you can't discount that uh, how hard it is even for a person at his stage in his career to direct your first film, to get funding, to you know put it out there and get it made. It's super hard. I think it did not make it any easier on him because he had to write and direct it. That, you know, when things changed, he didn't have anyone to have his back to help, you know, amend it and pare things down. Absolutely. Well, I know I sound a little bit like a broken record on this, but I'm going to kind of repeat one of the same things I say in a lot of these wrap ups, which is 
this idea that it's going to be easier when you get to a certain stage, right? Everyone, I think, always kind of thinks that it's going to be different when I get to this stage. When I'm making a movie with this budget, I won't have to deal with these problems. I won't have to deal with this. And I think what we continue to hear, especially with independent filmmaking, is many of those same problems, many of those same challenges are going to be the things you deal with despite the budget, despite the crew size. You're always you're always dealing with those type of problems and challenges, budget, time, money, daylight, and you moving know, he, crew and cast around. He said one of, he's hit on one of my favorite statements in there. The one thing you can't get back in with, you can't fix in production is time. Like you always need more time. Like, and so, yeah, it just, it, it, you're, you're exactly right. And I, he also said at the end there, the list of think takeaways for him and his advice was very good. Be tenacious, um, be patient, stay in your lane, make sure, find people that compliment you that you like working with and stick with them. And I think that that's great advice. Filmmaking is a collaborative experience. And so is this podcast. Follow us on Instagram at framework underscore productions for upcoming episode announcements and leave your questions in the comments for our future guests. The first 10 to comment are immediately entered to win a monthly prize. Please take a second to subscribe so you know about future episodes and leave a review. It really does help us. For more information about today's guest, visit independentfilmmakersguide.com to see visuals, diagrams, and to see links to the episode in video and article form. IFG is a community, and we want to help you in your filmmaking process. Hi, I'm Jonathan Abel. I'm an actor from New York, and I'll be reading the credits. IFG is created by Framework Productions, and it's directed by James Allardyce. Produced by Matt Mundy, edited by Audrey Ray McHale, and hosted by Stephen Pierce. The music is by Glassport. You can find his music on freemusicarchive.org. Hey friends, we just wanted to take a quick moment to talk about two personal things. First, we wanted to thank you, our listening community, and our wonderful guests. Learning so much together along the way, and continuing to learn sharing our stories, making a lot of new friends, and collaborating, which is exactly what this is all about. Which also brings me to my second point. In great part to many of these new relationships, we wanted to let you know that we've taken a lot of this advice ourselves and made our own narrative feature film, Heard. H-E-R-D, Heard, which is premiering this October on Friday the 13th in select theaters as well as on VOD. Personally, I think it's the perfect kind of scary movie to watch during our favorite scary season. So we'd love for you to celebrate with us and watch Herd. You can pre-order it on Apple TV and of course do the communal thing, see it in theaters. Of course, for all of this, please see our show notes, but basically we're going to keep it all updated at herd.film. That's H-E-R-D dot F-I-L-M, herd.film as well. Thank you again, and be sure to give us a rating and a review over on Apple Podcasts so we can continue to build this community and collaborate. IFG, how movies get made.